Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E. M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Adam Christensen, who is a Vancouver native guitar player and songwriter currently performing with the UK-based metal powerhouse Architects. He joined the band in February of 2015, and he's been a part of the two most recent records, All Our Gods Have Abandoned Us and Holy Hell, which are super highly praised in the metal world. Anyways, I introduce you. Adam Christensen. Adam Christensen, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Hello. Our pleasure. So you're in Canada. How are you in a British band? Uh, interesting story. Um, so a band I used to play in way back, kind of like my, I guess you could say first band technically, it's called The Textbook Tragedy, basically kind of the band that I started with a few friends in school, just the standard kind of garage setup, you know, having some fun with your friends. And then, you know, stick with it for a little while. Then kind of after I graduated high school, we started touring straight away. And then, you know, did a few cross Canada tours and a couple of American tours and had a little bit of success. And then eventually ended up uh, being on the same Canadian record label as Architects. And I wasn't super familiar with Architects at the time, but we just kind of became really good friends the first time that they came over to Canada to play. And just kind of hit it off well and, you know, fast forward a couple of years, did some fill-in stuff. Um, and then at some point, Tim left the band and then I kind of continued to do fill-in gigs and tours and whatnot. And then ended up joining full-time in about 2015. Why do you think that they asked you to do the fill-in stuff? And don't, when I ask this question, sometimes people are afraid they're going to sound braggy. So I'll just say you're not going to sound braggy. The reason I'm asking is because a lot of people who listen to this want to do something like that. They would love to be able to get into a bigger band or be a session player or, you know, a touring guitar player. So they're looking to understand how, what the dynamics are for actually getting one of those gigs in real life. So, so that's why I'm curious. Why do you think that they even asked you to fill in in the first place? It's hard to say. I'm, I think a lot of it, that kind of thing, because obviously there's loads of guitarists out there now, same if you're a drummer or whatever, but I think a lot of that sort of thing can come down to personal relationships and just general chemistry. Because um, if you're going to be touring 
uh, you know, who knows about the current status, but if you're going to be touring in normal situations, <laughs> sometime yeah, in the you're, you're going to be with living with people and playing shows and living in small quarters and stuff for weeks or months on end, uh, just the relationship you have and how you get along is a big part of it. So I think maybe that was a big aspect for it. You um, obviously being able to play and being a good player is, is key, but that's not everything as well. So I think a lot of it was just kind of down to the kind of friendship that we built and just kind of the general bond. I actually think that guitar playing is secondary when it comes to touring. <laughs> I think that um, just being able to get on with the person for extended periods of time, sometimes up to six months or a year, um, it's amazing that you would just, you would definitely choose someone that you get on with over someone that may be slightly better or something like that, just because the dynamic's always going to be better. I don't think a lot of people realize if you haven't toured before, kind of what that can be like. Like it's really almost like you're, you're in a marriage with multiple people. You're living together. You're spending majority of the day together. You're, you know, kind of on top of each other. So like you have to be able to, to get on and just have a good relationship. It's not just about the music as well. I think it's like the, it's like a cross between a marriage and a military mm -hmm. unit. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's, there isn't that kind of danger involved or anything. But sometimes, sometimes. The fact that every, <laughs> some, sometimes, yes, sometimes it is pretty dangerous. But I mean that everybody has a specialized skill. You're, you have to use those skills in order to get the job done. You're kind of in it for each other. Uh, there's, there's a lot of similarities there. I think the fact that you had already toured with them sounds like a key detail because like, you're saying no one really knows what goes into that until they've done it. And by that same token, I think you don't know who you're bringing into your band unless you've toured with them. Like that's where you really get to know who they are. So the fact that they already toured with you probably helped big time. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually saw textbook tragedy on a tour with architects. Did you really? Yeah, it was 2011. Or maybe, yeah, it might have even been that early, but it was with Misery Signals. Yeah, that was the one. That I, th I feel like that was either beginning of 2010 or beginning of 2009. Well, it was my birthday the day that I saw you, so I know it was in Whoa, January. that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, the yeah. Peterborough Park, which was a pretty awful venue by all accounts, but it was a good show. <laughs> that was a really cool tour as well because... Uh, I grew up, well, listening to Misery Signals because they were like a, you know, they're, I guess you could say half Canadian, half American band, but they were very influential in the scene at the time. And they're now good friends of mine. So it was quite cool to like play, play music with a new band that I like, Architects, and a band that I looked up to as well. And just kind of how that all came together. And now currently being an Architects was kind of a, kind of a transitionary period. It was quite interesting. Ben told me that you said something interesting to him about your goals that you had never really had a moment where you said that you want to do this for the rest of your life. Like this is what I want to do for sure. It more just organically evolved. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. I think what I was saying to him, like I, I don't really recall ever having a kind of an aha moment. Like when I was younger, like I started playing guitar when I was about 12 but I've been playing music for a few years before that, like through piano and kind of a couple other things at school. But it was just kind of a pretty organic transition. Like I just you know, started playing guitar, then kind of 
caught on to the the pop punk thing. Like I didn't have an older brother or I, I had one older cousin who played music, but I was pretty much the only one in my family who was interested in that sort of thing. Um, so I kind of got into the, the, the blank and the green day. That was kind of my first dabble into, you know, rocky guitar music and stuff. And then it just kind of evolved from there. And then you start playing with your friends at school and stuff. And then before you know it, you're doing some tours and stuff like that. Like it just kind of happens. Like I didn't really have any kind of a methodical plan for it. It just kind of evolved that way. So the goal wasn't like, I'm going to get into a big ass band. That's what I see for the future. It was just, I enjoy making music and it, one thing led to another. Yeah, I think so. Like it was just really kind of the cliche, like just playing music with your friends and having a good time. And then, you know, local gigs start turning into, you know, national gigs and then you go to Europe or it just kind of happened that way. Like it was very organic. It was not really predetermined in my mind. I don't think. Was there something else you wanted to do instead? Not really. Like, um, the only thing that I had really thought about doing was going into like to, to go to a, a school to study audio engineering, which was kind of in the same realm, of course, but I didn't have anything else like, oh, I'm going to be an engineer or I'm going to be a, be a plumber. There's nothing kind of else that I was really super into. I just was loving music, but I hadn't really thought of it as, as a job or, you know, making that my career. You know, what I think is interesting is that some element I think of being successful in music over the long term involves not letting it become a job, even though it does become a job, uh, keeping the mentality of not letting it become a job is super important. We were just talking to Misha about that yesterday, about how he sees periphery as a hobby, which makes him enjoy it that much more now. Yeah. I think that one of the hardest things actually, when you're going for a music career is to keep that passion going. So it sounds like you didn't have a problem with that. No, I'm, I mean, I, maybe I'm similar in that way where like, you know, we, you know, play these crazy shows and stuff and have, you know, a good amount of success and everything, but I still kind of f feel in a way like my 17 year old self, like I'm still just playing in my bedroom and, you know, it's, it's still not too separated from that in some ways. Like it's, it's odd. It's an odd thing. Well, was there ever a moment where you were like, holy shit, this is real? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you get on, on stage to a certain festival or something. I'm sure John, you've had this experience before too. You're just like, whoa, here it is. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It just hits you like a ton of bricks sometimes. But you know, when I'm at home and just kind of living my ordinary life, like it's, it, I still feel like I'm just some, some kid playing in my bedroom that I, you know what I mean? Like I still have that kind of I guess you'd call it an innocence or kind of a, I guess it's a modesty thing, but like I, I, I still feel like someone else in a, in a, that's not in a, in a band like that. I don't know. Do you guys remember when the first time you had that holy shit, this is real moment? Mine was uh, on stage at OzFest in, at the LA show. It was, it was like 15,000 people and it was just like, wait a second. This is actually <laughs> happening. Holy shit. <laughs> it, uh, it was totally surreal. Um, and I remember exactly that moment. I'm wondering if you guys do. What's yours, John? Yeah, there's definitely a few moments of that for me. One was um, when Fell Silent supported Enter Shikari um, in 2008. So we supported them three years earlier. And it was before they really got big. 
So we did like the toilet tour, I want to say in 2005, you know, <laughs> playing probably some of the worst venues. And then 2008 comes around, we get asked to be support for them again. And some of the venues are like 3000 cap, you know what I mean? And it's like, I know that's not a huge amount um, by any means. It's a good amount though. It's still. Still, not a small amount. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's still pretty scary. So that was probably one of the first times. And then I think the second time was when we um, played main stage Summer Breeze in 2016 that was pretty wild to do that's that that's pretty big yeah it was massive um yeah that whole in fact that whole we did the whole festival season that year so it was like vacan summer breeze um what else i can't even remember what we did um but yeah it was just a bit surreal going to all these festivals and playing to that many people and people knowing it you know what i mean and then again i guess for you adam what what moment was it for you the one that stands out would probably be, I think it was 2012, which was the the London, uh, was it Warp Tour? Was it Coco? No, it was at uh, Alexander Palace. Pretty sure yeah. that was Warp Tour. It was like the one-off one off UK date for a Warp Tour. Is that when Watsky jumped off? I'm not sure. I feel no. like I, I did um, my kind of first long Architects tour in 2012. We did like a 100-day 30 odd country tour was crazy. Damn. That's intense. Yeah, that was, and that was also me having not toured f- fully for a couple of years as well. So that was extra, like, whoa. But yeah, it was that show and at Ag- Alexandra Palace in the UK, which is, if no one knows what that is, it's like a 10,000 capacity giant square cavern. It's huge. Yeah. And uh, I had never really been on a stage that size. And I was just like, wow, because we walk out and you're doing like a support slot on a tour like that or a show like that. You don't really get like a sound check and stuff. So you kind of just get thrown into the fire. <laughs> and I've never been on a on a stage that large in front of that many people. And I just walked out and was like, holy shit. Like you just have no, no way to prepare for that. That was kind of my first big, big wall moment. Actually, a question for you. Do you find that playing to the larger crowds is kind of easier? I definitely get that vibe. It's way easier because you can't really make sense, I guess, of how many people are there versus, you know, 10 people standing with their arms crossed in a room. I'm definitely way less anxious in that situation. Um, I don't know how it is for you guys, but yeah, the festivals, it seemed way easier than playing in a club, um, supporting a band that, you know, and they don't like you. (laughs) Yeah. You're way under the microscope there, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it happened on, uh, so we supported Carnival in 2015. I remember getting booed off stage in Paris and it's only ever happened twice. And I just remember that feeling of anxiety <laughs> from it. It's like, that's hor- it's pretty rare to get booed. Yeah. Like actually booed off stage. Yeah. At the end, I just remember hearing a few people, like more than a few shouting, you know, boo. I mean, it's carnival. I get it. You know, they're fucking amazing, but still it was just. You think there'd be a pretty open-minded crowd though for a band like that. Exactly. Yeah. But I think it was only the Paris show. Everywhere else was pretty receptive, but yeah, it was a bit weird. That reminds me of uh, opening for Slayer in Germany. <laughs> that was so fucking intimidating. Uh, it went better than I expected, but I was so like nervous about that crowd. And there were definitely boos. That's a very, very aggressive crowd. But still, that's nowhere near as uh, intimidating or just like traumatic as a small show that doesn't go well. I feel like 
because you just feel so stupid. <laughs> At least I do. <laughs> you're just, I mean, if you're playing a smaller venue, you're typically a lot closer to the audience, yeah. right? So like you just feel like you're standing on top of someone and they're like just looking at your frets or whatever. You just feel like an <laughs> idiot. But yeah, I think you're right. If you play like a larger show, like it, as overwhelming as it can be, it's also a bit easier in the sense that you, it's a little bit harder to like, you know, make direct eye contact with people. It's kind of more just like a, a big faceless lump of people rather than, you know, 15 people standing right in front of you. So sometimes it's easier in a way. Also, I think at the bigger shows, even if some people don't like you, you're still playing that bigger show. I think it's easier to be like, well, fuck you. I'm playing <laughs> this fucking show. I'm the one opening for Slayer, not you. Whereas at a small, tiny show, you just take their hate in. Yeah, every little it's more bit palpable, it. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And yeah. and I can't I can't can't trick myself into thinking I'm cooler than I am because it's like, well, there are only twenty people here, <laughs> so maybe they're right. So you know um, how people say that you should perform the exact same way regardless of who's there, whether it's a huge crowd or a small crowd or whatever, like. I get it, but at the same time, it's kind of asking a lot, in my opinion. Is. Yeah, because you feed off the audience. How, how are you supposed to generate the same type of uh, vibe when there is no vibe? It's pretty tough. I mean, I can definitely recall in the early days of my career, you know, you're playing to a small room of people and... I mean, alcohol definitely helps, but <laughs> I mean, you've really just got to go for it as best you can, right? Like, obviously, it's a very reciprocal thing with the audience. Like, you put out energy, they receive it and kind of give it back to you. So that's what makes a show electric, right? But if that energy isn't there, it's pretty challenging. I, I guess I'm quite lucky the fact that I've seen architects in pretty much every era of the albums. Like, I, I've seen them play to... 30 people and the last gig that I saw was when you guys played with Polaris and Beartooth and then Coco I've been to Roundhouse a few other shows quite a few over, over the other shows over the years and I don't think it really made a difference to how you guys performed I was always kind of amazed whenever I saw you play I guess maybe you guys just enjoyed it so much on stage that's what I always saw I think there's a must be a mix of of enjoyment, but also just kind of, you know, experience and, you know, hours on stage playing said songs and things like that. Like there's a little bit of muscle memory in there, but yeah, you can, you can certainly tell when a band's having a good show versus not having a good show. Can't you like, Oh, definitely straight away. Yeah. In fact, actually we spoke about this to Misha yesterday when they took, when they uh, toured with dream theater and the fact that it was a seated gig, just how different it was for them. I mean, can you imagine watching Periphery sat down? <laughs> that would be strange. Yeah, and it's just it's just a completely different atmosphere. It's the same. I think it's the same feeling as when you know when the crowd's not um, do you know do, giving you the energy that you want. Because I, I there's actually you're in Vancouver, right? That's right. There's a venue there that is seated. It's like a theater place. It's quite small, but I remember playing there. I can't remember the name of the venue, but we played there on one tour and it was just super weird. 
Yeah, we actually, uh, ooh, what year would that have been? Maybe 2013 or 14. We, I think I know the one. It's probably the Vogue Theater you're thinking of. Yes, I think so. We did a show here uh, with Straight From The Path. And I think the show was booked under the understanding that some of the seats would have been removed, but they weren't. So we played the show anyway, and it's definitely bizarre. Like it's, you know, you're at a metal gig. You're not at a sit-down casino dad rock sort of a situation, <laughs> right? Like... Yeah. And we we did the show with Glass Cloud, which is, oh, yeah. you know, the, the remnants of Tony Danza. That, which that's is... definitely music to sit down to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Have a nice sparkling and water. Come to think of it, I actually, uh, I saw Dream Theater and Opeth in between the Baird and me in a theater in Miami with seats. And that, like... They're all great bands, so it was cool to watch. But at the same time, it was like, this is just strange. It's just strange. And I'm used to the classical world where people sit down and then clap. But uh, it, it's just strange for a metal show. That's all. It's kind of like get it, with those sorts of bands that the prog stuff, when you got not only longer songs, but probably a general older age audience, like, you know, people in our thirties plus versus a bunch of teenagers and 20 year olds. Yeah. We maybe would enjoy sitting and watching those bands, but it's definitely weird for the genre, isn't it? Like, yeah, I definitely think that no matter how, I guess, heady or technical or any of those words that heavy music gets at the end of the day, it's still kind of a primal genre that, uh, people want to feel things and, it makes people want to move and all that extra stuff is I think kind of what makes bands unique and great, of course. But at the end of the day, it still comes back to something that's hyper energetic. And so without that, is it even the same genre anymore? I'm not so sure. Yeah. It's, it's odd, isn't it? Especially in the, the current environment, how that's going to play out. Yeah. How do you feel about the socially distanced gigs? Personally, I think they look fucking stupid. I would tend to agree with you. Um, what was that right. fest in the UK, Brown, that just happened recently where there's a little kind of individual pens that everyone was in? Yes. It looked like an Onion article or something. It did. Yeah, it was like, it was in Newcastle. I think they did an outside gig with like these, it kind of looked like those stands that were in Jurassic Park trying to stay away from Velociraptors. <laughs> Very much, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, again, it's a bit of a genre-based thing, isn't it, right? Like if you're, you know, a, a middle-aged to older person that's just sitting down to, you know, wants to see an old band or something, maybe it's not so bad. But if you're going to see an energetic metal band or a pop band or a DJ or whatever it is. It's, I don't know if that's going to translate very well. I'll tell you what would be funny though, to watch families doing circle pits on those. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. There was that one show that I believe made it on the internet from the Ukraine where a band played in front of a hotel where everyone was on the balconies and families were doing that sort of thing, and it was really weird looking. But the band was like down on the ground level somewhere? The band was on a stage facing the hotel, and so families basically rented out every room with a balcony, and so all the balcony rooms were filled up with like, you know, five or six people, and it was just weird. It was just weird, that's all. It was just it's weird all around. Weird. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually starting to think that in the, the time, I think the streaming 
thing is probably the the way that's going to be, it's going to start becoming more normal, especially after, you know, some of the streams that I've seen. I've seen the Papa Roach stream that was really good. I watched the Suicide Silence stream that was really good. Um, and Trivium have also done a stream that seemed to do really well as well. In fact, I think they actually bought a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, they did, like an airplane hangar or something. Yeah, yeah, to start doing it more regular, um, Lee. Like they've got their own installation almost or something. Yeah, which is smart, really. Because yeah. if you think about it, like we don't know when touring is going to start back up. And if you have the equity to do something like that, at least like once every couple of months, you can just top up the bank account that's depleting. Yeah, you know for I mean? sure. Yeah. I wonder even if there's going to be a point where, you know, you, you would play at a venue, but the venues will maybe kind of do their own thing. Well, not only will they have maybe they won't need a PA anymore, but they'll have their own video equipment or they'll have you know, some sort of a streaming set up there. So, you know, bands can book a show there, but then obviously there's no audience or a fewer audience or something. I'm actually surprised that no venue's done that yet, actually, to be honest. Yeah. Not that I've heard of anyway. It would make sense if that's how things are going to play out that, you know, especially a venue that could accommodate that sort of thing and you can have like their own permanent kind of broadcasting setup. And then you can start uh, doing the like the people that want to go to the show, obviously socially distanced, they can have VIP tickets and then anyone else that wants to see the show on their TV can just pay for normal tickets. I think we've got a business plan here, lads. <laughs> you never know. So I feel really, really bad for the people who work on the live end of things. However, I do believe that the ones who have ideas like that and actually follow through with them are the ones that are going to survive. And so I see a lot of people in the community posting about how terrible it is for clubs and what a tragedy it is. And I get it. I understand the sentiment. But at the same time, I'm not so sure that that really helps anybody. What I think what actually helps is for people to think of ways to actually find a solution to the problem and make the best of it. And so venues that do that sort of thing that you were talking about, Brown, and who are forward thinking and who are determined to figure it out, I think those are the ones that will survive. I think what's going to be interesting as well, not even just in the music industry, but how this whole situation is really going to push technology forward in many aspects of our lives. Like people that have lost jobs in, you know, pretty much any field, like whether you're a driver or whatever, like technology is going to increase quickly because that's just how it works, right? Like technology is meant to make our lives easier, but sometimes at the expense of, you know, traditional careers and things like that, right? Like technology just makes quite- human life easier, but sometimes it's, it's painful at first because it's like, oh, now if there's self-driving vehicles, we don't need truck drivers, right? It's like, well, that's a lot of people that lost their job. However, those people can now pursue something more meaningful or that they would rather be doing or whatever, right? It's painful in the moment, I think, but over over time, uh, it's just the way things work. Like, for instance, uh, I'm sure there was a whole industry based around building typewriters, designing sure. typewriters. There had to be millions of people employed doing that. The ink suppliers, all the rest attached to that, right? Yeah. I think Kodak's a really good example of this, actually. Yeah. How... Before the 2000s, they were one of the biggest companies in the world. And then they didn't follow through with digital cameras and then they're practically no longer a company. Yeah, just overnight basically finished, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's a painful thing, but 20 years later, does it even matter? I kind of don't think so. It's interesting how 
how basically the passage of time helps people forget that other industries even existed in the first place or that people have gone through this sort of thing before where they had a career and suddenly there was no career because there was no industry anymore. That's kind of a kind of something that happens over and over and over again. So I'm not actually too worried uh, big picture about how humanity is going to do because we always find a way out or a way forward. I also think that this is kind of just going to accelerate things that were already happening. So like, for instance, people were already starting to get sick of physical schools, brick and mortar schools. There was already a lot of talk about how student debt is insane, uh, at least in the U.S., and how it's a ripoff and not worth it. And the college degree doesn't matter the way it used to. Well, now that they can't go there and they're doing online learning, I feel like a lot of people who stopped going to a physical college during COVID probably won't go back. Yeah, I can't see that unless, you know, it's a particular yes. field that you're in that requires a laboratory or something like that. But like, Yes, exactly. Yeah. Something specialized. But like I think in our field, like music, I think, for instance, the in-person schools are going to get super decimated if they don't figure out how to do stuff online. Because why would someone who wants to play guitar spend $24,000 a year going to Berkeley when they can get just as good learning online. 100%. Like that was kind of my situation as well, but that was before all this happened. But like, you know, you can, there's some really you know amazing schools for that kind of thing, whether you want to, you know, study your instrument or study engineering or whatever it is, but you know, they're generally expensive. Like, you know, the average person's going to go into twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of debt to go to the school when you can, you know, not the same education, but you can largely learn everything on YouTube and just by learning from your other people, like just getting involved and and just getting hands on and learning learning a skill. I think that with most things it's about mostly about the well, same with your situation, Adam. It's about the relationships you build over time. And that's kind of the way that you get your way into doing a certain field. And I think that, I mean, I wouldn't have riff art if I hadn't met AL. Yeah. You know, just as an example, I think that school to a degree is kind of outdated in many ways. And I think that like with anything, if I'm going to refer to a film <laughs> again for the third podcast in a row. We love Interstellar. Oh, brilliant yeah. movie. Yeah. And it's, we have to adapt. I know the scene you're talking you know, about exactly too. Wait, wait exactly. what movie did you say? I missed it. Interstellar. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Is that the part when, um, I'm forgetting the character's names, but Matthew McConaughey's daughter has a bad test result in the school, but the school is basically decrepit in that current state of the world, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big thing too. Like obviously technology is in schools, but it can't keep up as quickly because you're talking about, you know, in many cases, big institutions that take time to, you know, change their curriculum and, uh, you know, the, all the teachers and everything have to learn new material. Like it's evolved so quickly now. I don't know how schools can keep up. They can't. This is something that we are noticing at URM. Um, we frequently, and we've always gotten people saying, wow, I learned more in three months at URM than I did at three years of recording school. You know, that's part of our goal. But also my opinion on why that happens, I mean, well, there's a few reasons, but one of the big ones is that these huge recording schools spent a ton of money 
to get like 25 SSL rooms for people to practice in. After investing that amount of money in those kinds of facilities to then suddenly just not use them anymore or go 100% in the box or any of that, <laughs> it's it's tough when you've spent millions of dollars on going in one direction. So it's like turning a very large ship on a dime, basically. So I, I actually, I think that you're very right. I just think that things move too quickly for those types of institutions. I bet um, between the three of us as well, like most people that we've worked with and know in, in the field and stuff, I mean, there's some that have probably gone to some sort of recording school or what, whatever, studied an instrument, that kind of thing. But I would think majority of them know what they do or have their job just because of their experience. Like they got in, started working, whether that's, you know, touring in a band or being guitar tech or just kind of got involved and just put in time and met people. And you're kind of, they're at where they're at now because of their experience, right? It's not because they got a certificate or something per se. It's more about just getting involved and learning hands-on. Dropping out of Berkeley was one of the best decisions I've ever made. <laughs> for sure. What were you studying? I was kind of studying a mix and match of a bunch of different things, like some guitar, orchestration, music business, production. I was just trying to get as many things that I felt were relevant to what I wanted to do. But at some point I just decided that it was better to just start my studio and start my band. And that's what I did. And just band, fake it till the, you make it. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the band got signed and the studio made a living. So it was, it was a good decision. I do know some people who finished and ended up having careers, but I would wager that they would have careers either way. Yeah. They had the natural ability already. Yeah. And they had the drive. So it just so happened that they finished. But I, I think that the kind of person who makes a music career makes a music career happen regardless of their schooling. Yeah, I would agree with that. Or any field. doesn't matter what you want to do. It's really about you, your decisions and how much you're willing to put into it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess when you were learning, how did you go about it? Did you have a teacher? Are you self-taught? Like well, I started on piano first when I was about... I would say eight or nine. Again, I don't really remember uh, asking for piano lessons. I think it was something my parents put me in. Like it wasn't like forest or anything, but I wasn't like, oh, I want to play piano. But I'm glad I did because that was a great foundation. And then um, I started playing trumpet in the school band when I was about 12. And I played that all through high school. So my actual main instrument at school was trumpet, oddly enough. But when I was about 12... You still play it. Oh, it's so bad. I, I'd have to relearn. <laughs> I, I always struggle with it. I didn't have the right physicality for it, but luckily I found guitar. But I started playing guitar when I was about 12, and uh, that was all self-taught, but I had some musical background already. Have you ever gone in lessons? Never. That would have been pre-YouTube you know, pre and stuff. So this was like, you know guitar.com and all the early tabs websites and stuff. I'm sure you both remember. Mm -hmm. Yep. This would have been like probably around the, the Napster Kazaa era too. So like you're downloading MP3s and learning songs and stuff. And I was a big uh, guitar world nut when I was a kid. So a lot, a lot of, you know, learning through guitar magazines and things like that, but it was mainly just fiddling around and figuring it out. So, but you were still seeking the knowledge out somehow. Oh, sure. Like, yeah, it was, you know, like I said, Guitar Guitar World magazine, reading forums. At some stage, I'm not even sure how I found them, but found some of the old, remember that John Petrucci rock discipline, that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. just like VHS oh, yeah. rips of miscellaneous stuff. And 
I had a pretty eclectic kind of guitar melting pot too. Like I was really into Eric Johnson and like not even really a lot of metal, just kind of just general guitar players. I think that uh, when people think of self-taught, they generally don't think of that. They think of someone that just plays and doesn't actually seek the knowledge out. I think that that's what the impression of it is. But most of the awesome self-taught players I know uh, got awesome because they kind of didn't need a teacher. They were self-directed enough to seek out what they needed. And there's there's always been resources. I mean, Guitar World magazine, if you actually went through the stuff that was in it every single month, you would get better for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Even if you just picked one column every month or whatever it was, like you definitely you know pick up some new skills, and then you can work on those and apply that to your playing. Yeah. I guess the only difference would be that you wouldn't have the direct feedback from someone that's way better than you telling you that pick angle sucks or something. But, um, but I think that the advent of home recording technology kind of, kind of solved that in a way because you could yeah. finally hear what you actually sound like. Yeah, for sure. I remember having this a really crummy little, I don't even know what it was. It was like a voice recorder tape, tape deck thing. Like it wasn't meant for music. It was just like a little dictaphone thing. And I had that set up in front of my little crappy, like ghetto blaster and my little combo amp and just like, just dicking around right like so even back when i was 12 i was playing around with stuff and i think that's how like all of us definitely got better at our instrument because i remember having two tape decks that i used to record into each other so i could lay over tracks and this is like i i didn't even know i had a computer but i had no idea you could do this stuff on a computer <laughs> <laughs> i thought the this would have been like the end track era or like the really crappy free dawes and stuff Oh, I mean... Before that, maybe even. It must have been 99, 2000. Sound Blaster era. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a Sound Blaster Audigy after that moment, but I think I was 15 and I met Ackle and he said, oh, you don't use a DAW? And I'm like, I don't know what, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think the recording is the single most important aspect of actually getting better at the instrument because when you're playing, you're not really listening. Yeah. Just you know, fully because your concentration's elsewhere. So yeah, I, I think that I made the most amount of progress from when I started actually analyzing the recordings that I was doing. Have you ever heard of Making Waves, the DAW? No. Hmm. Look up makingwavesoftware.com. That's the first DAW I ever used. And I can't believe that the site still exists. Wow. I, like, I'm gonna I can't have to have a look believe at this that right this now. still exists. It's like one of those like super basic HTML sort of things it, yeah just look at the site it, oh my god yeah, making so waves <laughs> with, a, with a with an e or no e it's making waves wait like, like w-a-v-e-s making wavesoftware.com but uh it pretty much looks exactly the way it did still i guess in 1999 i cannot believe that this is still up it's still for sale should we pick up a copy yeah <laughs> i think you should John, maybe we can do a, a demo video of that and put it through the paces. <laughs> oh, oh my God. No, no, thank you. Well, maybe. We'll see. Just for comedy value. Um, it, it looks like the uh, the Reaper from 20 years ago. I was about to say, Reaper still kind of looks like this, doesn't it? <laughs> I think my first version of something I had was just a really old, ripped version of Cubase or something. That was my first 
decent piece of software. Yeah, Cubasis or something. Mine too, actually. No idea how to use it, but I had it. Cubase SX, that was the first real, like, so Making Waves was the first DAW I used, but the first time that I actually stepped up into something real was Cubase. I had VST 5.1, so it was before SX. It was the one before. Wow, old school. I remember using it at, at school as well because uh, the year that I got to age 16, they opened up the first music technology thing where the teachers didn't even know how to use it either. So you are schooled? Me? Yeah. Well, not really. I mean, they showed me how to pan an instrument. Hey. <laughs> so you, so you're a little schooled. Yeah, I guess I'm schooled then. There you go. Sounds like you're schooled like me. The certificate's in the post. Did you finish? Actually, I, actually, I think I failed it. I failed too. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, like, uh, man, I got so many Fs at Berkeley. <laughs> F for Fantastic, right? Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> I mean, okay, so some of it was because I was being rebellious because they wouldn't let me test out of things, which I thought was bullshit because I had already studied Harmony and I didn't understand why I had to be in Harmony 1 with people who had never, ever learned anything about it, ever. It just seemed like a complete waste of time. So uh, I just didn't go and I got failed for that. So I don't know. I feel like uh, one thing that's still true 20 years later, it's maybe even more true, is that uh, you really have to decide what it is you want to spend your time on because it's so easy to get overwhelmed with the amount of choices you have. And now you have the choice to, now that everything's online, you can really go down a million rabbit holes or tell yourself that you need to learn every single thing under the sun and get super overwhelmed. It was bad when I was in school, but it's even worse now. I think it's that much more important to say no to things that aren't relevant and really, really focus on the things that matter. And so I guess to me, it just seemed like I would ask myself, is going to this class getting me closer to the actual goal of getting my band signed and getting my studio off the ground? And the answer is no. So I'm not going to this fucking class. Give me an F. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's irrelevant <laughs> in the grand scheme. Yeah. So I made a list once. The list was like everything that a guitar player should learn. And it was just like everything you could imagine in every single genre. And uh, it gave me like a minor anxiety attack because <laughs> it, it was like, you know, everything from reading chord charts to perfect bends to like... Uh, being able to sight read music at like uh, concert speed to being able to play scales and arpeggios and everything like either economy pick alternate pick just like every single thing but like it's an impossible list it's an impossible <laughs> list but if you're not making the decisions to okay I'm going to get really good at this thing that I'm really passionate about you can you can get that analysis paralysis I think yeah, absolutely. That said, what were the things that you focused on when you were getting started or what do you even focus on now? Um, I would say probably initially it was just kind of learning songs. Like I said, I kind of my first thing that got me into music was kind of the pop punk stuff. So obviously very simple, but also good simple in the fact that you need to have like, you know, good, good picking and good downstrokes and like just kind of foundational sort of stuff. It's good got to sound right. Yeah, like it's got to be punchy and powerful. So I think that 
as simple as that was, it was, it was very relevant to metal as well. Cause it's, you know, you have a very, you know, good right hand and things like that. So it was, I don't know if I was consciously working on specific techniques, but as I kind of learned the songs, it kind of started to come naturally. And then I started to, you know, like I said, read magazines and stuff and, oh, what's hybrid picking? And like, that's obviously a lot more advanced, but I started kind of embellishing on what you can do with the guitar and learning, learning the notes on the fretboard a little bit better and just kind of expanding gradually with learning songs. What about now? Like when you, do you practice now? I guess, do you practice in a, I want to get better at guitar sort of way, or is it more just... I have to do this thing professionally, so I'm going to learn this thing I have to do and everything involved with that, like outcome-oriented. I would say probably more the latter these days. Like I spent a lot of time when I was younger, like kind of cutting my teeth. Like I remember probably when I was around 16 or something like that, like I was really into Zach Wilde for a while. So I was like really, you know, hammering all that. Yeah, hammering all the pentatonic stuff and just, you know, playing guitar for six or eight hours in a, in a sitting kind of thing, right? Like, this is what I'd love to do. Um, and so I think you can, you're a good pinch harmonic guy then. I'm the best. <laughs> I'm the best. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's a bit like, what's that saying when you have, was it 25,000 hours or something? You know, you put X amount of time into a skill, you kind of have your baseline and then, not that you don't have to work on it, but you're kind of got your your established ability sort of thing. So it's more just kind of topping up the tank, if you will. Like I don't have to sit and spend hours a day anymore if, unless I wanted to. They say 10,000 hours, but I actually think you're right that it's 25,000. Yeah. I've always thought so, 10,000 is kind of, kind of low. Not that you can ever master an instrument. That's impossible. But I, I feel like I got most of what I needed to do done at a younger age. So it was kind of more nowadays just about like just the enjoyment of picking up and playing. I'm not necessarily going to like work on a scale, even though I should do that because that's a good thing to do. But it's just kind of more about picking up and noodling and just getting your hands on the guitar. I actually have a question about this as well, because is it because your guitar's in uh, a different tuning as well? Does that sort of play into why you might not necessarily practice just a scale? Not really, because our tuning is is weird, but it's not so weird where you can't improvise or something on it like it's just one string most of the time that's a little bit odd but yeah it's I just it's just more about for me just kind of playing along to things and yeah I'm a bit lazy with the practicing to be honest (laughs) (laughs) I understand I think that anybody who's under the age of 22 should heed this advice those are the years basically 13 through 22 where you really should focus on getting better because it seems like past that real life is going to come in, whether that means your band starts getting somewhere or you have a job or whatever, real life, general life, life, whatever path your life is taking, life starts to become a real thing. Even though it feels like a real thing when you're 16, it's not. And so you can, uh, that's the time in your life when you really could spend eight hours a day on guitar. Now, we do know some people in their 30s who spend that kind of time on guitar still, like Wes Houck, but I think that they're the exception. They're they're the exception. I think most people, if they want to do music, they want to play an instrument for a living in the future, uh, make it a thing, you should spend those teenage years just getting f- as good as you can. 
I think you're right. Just the, the time thing. Cause I mean, really when you're a teenager, what do you, what do you have to do? You're, you go to school and come home and you have nothing to do, but play video games or whatever. You don't have to buy groceries and like you just live on typically live under your parents' roof and that's about it. Right. So you've got the time to do so, but I think also your, your mentality, like your, you know, when, you know, when young kids learn a language or something like that, like they can pick it up so quickly. But if, either three of us tried to learn a language today it'd be pretty rough going probably right like so if you you're younger you, i think you're just able to absorb music in general but you can just learn learn an instrument because you've got the time and you've got the absor- absorptive mind to do so i think also you just don't have as many other things taking yeah. your attention yeah yeah there's fewer to no obligations yeah i was literally gonna say the the attention span is definitely uh withered a lot more in the older age. Oh, definitely. When it comes to the instrument, it's not that I don't enjoy it anymore. It's literally just as AL said, though, like, you know, something to do over there and it automatically has put you in a different mindset where you can't just focus on the guitar for even just four hours. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, as you get older too, like you've got other obligations, you might have new interests. Like it's not as big of a part of your life necessarily when you're older as it is when you're a teenager or something. Oh man, I remember when I was 16, like, Three hours a day was like a bad day, (laughs) you know, like, and I would feel like a loser if I did like three hard hours of practice. It was, I was aiming for five, six, seven, eight kind of stuff, sometimes 12. And basically as soon as things started to get real, as in the first client came into the studio or the songs that the band was writing were becoming I guess, good enough to where I was starting to think this could actually do something. Uh, As soon as that started happening, that amount of time I could spend on the instrument just started to dwindle. Yeah, for sure. Because I I don't know, it's almost like uh, these, just say that you're, you have a 100% music career. Uh, There's a lot more to it than just playing that you're going to have to worry about. So Ideally, the best time to get good is before your career. Even though you, yeah, even though you, you will get better during your career, hopefully, still. But uh, I think the stronger a foundation you can build before it, the better off you'll be. Mm-hmm. I think another thing, too, this is obviously a different situation in our current climate, but is performing as soon as you can. Like, Mm-hmm. I, like I was playing music at school, so performing in front of people from a pretty young age. But, you know, my old band, we basically started touring when I was about 16 or 17. So I was like playing often pretty early. But I'm sure as you both know, you can sit and practice and work on a song for as many hours as you want at home. But until you've played it live once, you don't know the song yet, do you? Like you really have to perform it. And that's when you really cut your teeth on a song or whatever you're working on. It's almost like if you haven't played it live 50 times, you don't even know it yet. True. But I mean, yeah, especially that first one where it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Yeah, When you're not in the comfort of your own bedroom or room yeah, and all of a sudden flashing lights, smoke and adrenaline (laughs) adrenaline start going into the equation. Yeah. It really changes. Like there's often times when I'm stage when I feel like the song is so slow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I'm at home playing it to the song, my arm's aching. For sure. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's really interesting how adrenaline, adrenaline can totally mess with your tempo. Well, it messes yeah. with your motor skills, and this is a proven thing. Um, 
there's a certain percentage of fine motor skills that uh, that just go away when adrenaline kicks in. This is there's a parallel here to shooting, which is why when people are getting trained to shoot, it's not just shooting at targets. They try to simulate as close as you can to a real life environment because the moment that adrenaline kicks in, your breathing changes, your heart rate changes, you're sweating, like your accuracy just goes out the window. And so you need to rely on muscle memory. And it's the exact same thing with music. The moment that that fear or adrenaline, whatever, sweat, heart rate, breathing changes when you're on stage, your accuracy just will start to go out the window unless you've trained for feeling that way and still being able to pull it off, which you can only do through being on stage. That's why I think that uh, with very few exceptions, even the first out of five on a tour package will always blow the local opener off the stage, almost always. And not because they're necessarily more talented than the local opener, because obviously every talented band who's ever gotten somewhere started as a local it's not because they're more talented it's because they've been on tour for 40 days and this local band hasn't played in a month exactly it's such a huge thing expanding on that too like you can if one member of the band knows the part or the songs whatever inside and out that's great but you're a band like you, the whole band has to know the songs together like the whole unit has to be gelled together like and that only really comes with ideally touring right you're playing playing shows night after night after night and you just it gets better and better and better as you go along it's really interesting as well because obviously you guys play to a metronome live right we do yeah you can practice all you want at home to the metronome and play the same song but it will always feel different when the instrument's alive like the the drummer's always going to feel different the way that he grooves or she grooves. So even if you're as rehearsed as you can be and you don't get to practice before a show, I always find that it's ropey if we haven't rehearsed because of that. <laughs> even though we play to a metronome, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite you, interesting. You kind of, if you haven't had that one rehearsal or, or whatever, you just feel like you're on shaky ground, don't you? Like you kind of, everyone's a little bit weary, not weary, but a little bit cautious of what's going on. And That's why it always used to terrify me when we didn't get any sound checks. <laughs> don't know what you're walking into. Yeah, just anything and everything could go wrong. I mean, now with the in-ear monitors and stuff like that, it makes it a lot easier. But I remember just like those festivals we played in 2016, it's before we moved to in-ears and every single day was terrifying just because it's like oh no sound check and they're most certainly gonna fuck up my wedge <laughs> oh man if, if anyone i mean has has not played an outdoor environment at all i mean if you don't have ears <laughs> like it's almost impossible to hear like it's fucking weird yeah wedges are tricky in general but when you're in an outdoor space that the sound just dissipates from the wind and all these things so it's like good luck like your, your drummer could be six <laughs> feet from me and you might not be able to hear a thing he's playing right exactly yeah it's interesting because uh when people think of outdoors if they're not used to it they think of a, like a really big sound like you, they think about like drums in a field like you would imagine they'd sound yeah. huge for some reason but actually they sound dry and like nothing yeah. and yeah. impossible to really hear it's like the re opposite of a stadium sound, isn't it? Like it's just so yeah. dead and just like in a vacuum. 
That's exactly that's exactly what it is. So based on everything we're saying, was it I guess scary to join a band that was already so gelled or was it kind of like comforting in a way? I would say it was pretty comforting. Like I was just super fortunate to to come into a band like with such great musicians, so that was really really cool, but also at the same time like I, in some ways, like our, my old band, our career paths were kind of parallel in some ways. Like uh, we never got to the same level as Architects was at that time. But as far as like our, our age when we started and kind of how we started and all those sorts of things. So we kind of had roughly the same amount of experience, I would say. But it, it was quite natural, really. And when I started playing with the band, too, the the kind of the career tra- trajectory of Architects was kind of going up as well so we were kind of all experiencing that together at the same time it's like a, it's not like i walked into an Metallica. arena band yeah exactly we kind of were the band was still growing but we kind of were growing into it together which was really cool so you got to experience the rise yeah which was really cool where whereabouts like just so i can understand and it was 2012 you started touring and what was the london shows you were playing at the time was it coco coco yeah it was Coco, yeah. yeah. That was the North Lane tour, right? Yeah, I'm straight from the path. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I saw that show as well. That was a really great tour. <laughs> that was really fun. Yeah. How long have you guys known each other? I think we first met in '07, so a dozen years or so, thirteen years, which is pretty wild. Something like that. It's a long time. I didn't actually realize it was that that early on. I thought that the the tour in the UK was the first time. I, I I keep messing that up, but I know it was on the Ruin album cycle, which was, I think, came out okay, in 07 yeah. or 08. And when Architects came to Canada, I, th- I feel like it was, maybe it was 08, but it was, yeah, early January. So it was only like a year or two after I met them that we were uh, doing that UK tour. And that was the first time I'd been over to Europe as well at that time. Do you find that... Uh Lots of the people that you know in the scene are people that you've known forever. Quite often, yeah. I'm sure you both know, but the the metal world as well. Like it's a pretty small network globally, really. Like very small. And sometimes you meet people that you've known from another country years prior, and then all of a sudden they pop up somewhere. Or, you know, people's own individual careers are continuing to go on, and you come across each other years later or something. Have you ever had that where you met somebody at one point in time? years ago when they didn't even have a career and then years later you bump into them and they're doing something fucking crazy no one off the top of my head but i'm i'm sure it happens you know like people people bloom late or you know an opportunity comes to them later on or whatever the situation is i've seen it quite a few times i guess that's why i think that should never never discount anybody. Oh, no. It's because, um, first of all, it's an asshole thing to do. But second of all, things move quickly. One year even can can make all the difference in the world. And you never, you never know where you're going to bump back in to somebody. That's a good thing just in life, isn't it? Yeah. Like don't, you know, you shouldn't discount anybody ever, but you could... They could help you at some point down the line. You could help them some point down the line. Like, it's just... Well, I guess I bring it up because I feel like uh, in music, you hear a lot about established people acting that way or sometimes even, like, bigger local bands act that way towards smaller local bands or, you know, headliners will sometimes act that way towards openers. Um, 
But the thing that I've noticed is that the people that stick around the longest tend to not act like that at all. I think modesty and being humble is a big part of the game. Yeah, it's too, I mean, yeah, it's just being a good person, but then also it's a survival strategy, I think. We've all met the people with the big egos or a big band with a big ego, and that generally doesn't work in your favor in the long run, does it? No, I think because uh, at some point their popularity is going to start to uh, to decline. I mean, for, that happens for most bands. There's a peak and then, you know, most bands aren't Metallica or something like that. Most bands will hit a peak and then go back down and then kind of level off or have several different peaks. But I've noticed that if bands burn too many people at any stage, even when they're at the peak, it's going to be really, really hard to regain that momentum after it goes down, which it will. 100%. I I think that goes back to what we were discussing earlier too, just about networking and just how, how, you know, your relationships with people, whether it's getting into a band or working at a studio, whatever it may be, it's just about being a good person in a lot of situations, isn't it, right? Like it's, you obviously have to, you know, be good at your job and be competent and everything. But at the end of the day, if you, people want to be around you, you'll probably have more success than if you piss people off. I actually go out, I don't know, uh, I, I'm one of those people that kind of goes out of um, their way to help people with certain things. And it's not because I want anything back. It's just that I want that kind of level of treatment back, you know, treat people how you want to be treated. The golden rule. Um, exactly. Yeah. And it's amazing that in the music, what if you're world, a there's so many people. <laughs> <laughs> that, that shouldn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I just, I just like, uh, you know, I think that if everyone in the music scene just went and helped every single person out, then it would just be a much sort of cooler place. But, um, like it's it's so strange when you see those local bands that act in that way and then you just like, they're never going to, you know, you're going to see that they're never going to get on tour with any band just because that's the way that they act, you know? They'll learn the hard way. What's interesting though is uh, that generosity you're talking about, I actually think is pretty common among pros. It's common in the production world and I've noticed it from one band to another quite often. Even though there's obviously competition, I feel like most pros can be very sportsman-like about it and help each other out. I think it definitely takes more effort to hold grudges and be nasty than it does just to be a good person, doesn't it? Like, it's easy to be to be friendly and easy to be cooperative. It's hard to be an asshole. <laughs> it's hard work. It is, yeah. And it's like mentally draining, yeah. especially when you're on tour for like six weeks, you know, being hungover and... You know, I just think it, it's just a much easier way to do it. In fact, actually, I was having this conversation last week. So I was at 42 Gear Street. I don't know if you're familiar with a YouTuber called Henning Pauly. Um, but he runs an event every year where he invites a certain amount of YouTubers to come along with a certain amount of brands. And it's basically like a really, really small NAM show where, where everyone films videos. And Blogfest. Geekfest. Blogfest, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I remember just talking to some of the brands there and I was just like saying, um, it's good to see this, that, that, that even the brands aren't in competition because in a way you can't force someone to like a certain product. So there's almost no need for the competition at all. And, and I think it translates to bands as well. There's no point having that competition because you can't force someone to like your music. I think that those relationships always need to be healthy, even if you are kind of doing a similar thing. Do you know what I mean? Well, the competition 
I think there's an element to being human that can't not be competitive. However, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And I think that the way that you should be competitive is if you see somebody that's doing something awesome, it should motivate you to do something awesome too. But your own thing, that's awesome. Not motivate you to try to take them down or fuck with their success or something like that. I think that it should it should help light a fire inside of you to do better. And I think that as long as the competitive spirit stays like that to where people get motivated by other people, then it's all good. The moment that it becomes something where people see success or competition and then try to take somebody down, that's where I think it's uh, not cool. No, like it should be inspirational, shouldn't it? Like whether you're in a band or you're playing a sport or something, like if that's how you learn as well. Like if you're, you know, learning to play guitar, you get a lot better by playing with people who are better than you because you can see what they're doing and it challenges you to get up to their level. That should be a good thing. It shouldn't be like a jealousy or some some negative competition, right? It should inspire you and make you want to improve and therefore the whole the whole activity gets better. Yeah. And however, I think that it would be disingenuine to deny the competitive aspect because you might see somebody that's better and want to get better than them, but it should, but it, I just think it shouldn't be a motivation to destroy them or something like that. No. Yeah. Have you guys seen that um, Michael Jordan documentary called The Last Dance? No, but I've heard that I should. It's wicked. I think I've got one episode left, but it's pretty much about that. Like he was obviously the best for a reason. Like he was, he's competitive by nature in every aspect of his life. And sometimes that could be negative if you're, you know, a little bit nasty, but ultimately it made them one of the best teams in the sport, right? He was able to pursue any sport and excel at it. So it's having, you need to have some sort of drive, but as long as you're using it in a constructive, positive way. Yeah. And I I feel like if you have that drive, you can't just turn it off. It's wired in. So it's more about how you aim that weapon, basically. Yeah. That kind of ties in as well to the, the the education thing we we're talking about before. Like, you can you could learn a skill on YouTube or whatever, but you still have to have the drive to continue to to pursue that knowledge and apply it and improve it. You have to have some sort of self discipline to you know keep on track with something like that. So, speaking of discipline, would you consider yourself a naturally disciplined person or is this something that you need to actively impose on yourself? Just in general? Yeah, just in general. Yeah. I mean, it could mean about guitar, could mean about anything, just in general. I feel I've got a pretty good control of willpower and and just like if, if I'm into something, I tend to go pretty deep into it. Like when I first got into guitar, I got all deep into it and like... If, I, if I'm interested in a subject of something, I spend a lot of time learning about it. But on the other hand, I'm also a horrible procrastinator. <laughs> so that's a problem. And I've been that way since I was in school. How do you overcome it? Because obviously you've had to. Maybe maybe just when when deadlines come up or something, I maybe I just function well on that. Like I can I remember going back to even be in elementary school, like having a project due and like, you know, waiting to the last day or two to do it, that sort of thing. But they always got done and I always had a good result. But yeah, that's definitely something that's, that's tricky for me. Time management. Have you found that obviously I know that you're avidly into your cycling. 
Um, have you found that that's helped you with the discipline a little bit? Probably, yeah, because I feel like that's kind of similar to guitar in in that regard because I've always really enjoyed um, gear with guitar, right? Because it's fun. You can experiment with your sound and everything. And cycling has elements of that too. So there's obviously the the sport itself or the playing if you parallel to guitar, but you can also play with, you know, the gearing and the tires and that sort of thing. But it definitely makes you accountable to what you're doing because it's it's so simplistic. And there's got to be times where you don't want to do it, but you do it anyways. Absolutely. If it was a rainy day or something, right? Like, you know, you've, I have to do some exercise today or like, it's that sort of thing when you, you never regret it once it's over, but getting, getting out the door is the hard part. I think that it's, it's good for people to hear that even somebody that's accomplished at something, whether it is fitness or guitar or whatever, just to hear that people who have done something with it still have those feelings of, uh, God, I don't feel like doing this fucking thing today, <laughs> but they do it anyways. <laughs> yeah. You're your own worst enemy, aren't you? Like everyone's human at the end of the day, you still got to commit to doing something and just get over that hurdle. And it's, it's always, always better in the long run. When it comes to cycling and you do get the God damn it, not today feeling, do you just ignore it? or tell yourself anything like how do you how do you get yourself to the bike and just go it's definitely tough there's certainly days where it can get the better of you um but it's just i have to do this i i, I will do this <laughs> kind of do you thing. do it do you do it every day mostly yeah it's it's definitely easier this time of year like i'm looking outside and it's we've got kind of a, a late summer here but when the weather's great and the sun's shining it's so easy it's just like you're just loving it, right? But if it's overcast and wet or cold, it's definitely harder work. But again, you always feel better afterwards. You feel recharged, your mental state's much better. I, I've noticed with uh, exercise that what you're saying is absolutely true. And then also, I know that if I let that voice get the better of me more than like one day in a row, that that can easily start to kill momentum. Oh yeah. Like the one, one day is like po more than one day is like, it's an exponential yep. increase in difficulty, isn't it? Yeah. It's weird. Same on the other side. Like if you've been traveling or whatever, if you haven't been able to do whatever your choice of exercise is for a while, that first one is always just like, Oh, I don't want to go to the gym or I don't want to go on the bike or whatever your thing is. Like that first day is always so tough, but once it's behind you, you feel fantastic. And then the next day you look forward to it. Right. Like it's very mental. Do you take the bike on tour? I do, yeah, which is quite cool. It's fun to see Sick. cities from a different different viewpoint and get out of the venue for a few hours. That's got to make touring a much more uh, mentally healthy experience. Yeah, I mean, we're all pretty active physical band. Like some of us run, some of us go to the gym, but I think that's definitely important. Like just a to have a little bit of space. You can, it's kind of your own time for a couple hours or whatever you're doing. But it just, yeah clears your head and keep keeps you in good shape too because ultimately you're going to perform better if you're in good physical shape so with guitar uh i know that you said that you don't really think about practicing but obviously you've got to keep your skills up to be able to play in the band you play in so obviously you do have to do something on guitar you can't just not play so is it a similar sort of thing like when when you got to get it done even if you don't feel like it just 
fucking do it anyways. For sure. Yeah. It's there's there's also the the muscle memory aspect of it too. Like for me, the the trickier thing, it's not even uh, like a physical thing. It's just like, if, for example, if I'm learning a new song or something new, right, that you haven't done. That's what takes time. It's more kind of the mental exercise for me, like memorizing parts and patterns and stuff like that. It's never really like an issue of physically playing. It's kind of more the mental exercise of it. But yeah, that's just, you know, getting your hands on the guitar. And it's not even about necessarily spending a ton of time. It's just you're, you know, playing it at least a little bit all the time. So you're not getting too rusty and unfamiliar with it. Yeah. Brown, how much do you still play? <laughs> uh, should I answer this <laughs> yeah. question on the Riff Hard podcast? All the cards are on the table here. You should. Okay, right. So obviously for the past month, because I've been doing this room and then I went to Germany, I haven't played anywhere near as much. But I want to say that I get in at least 30 minutes to an hour a day. At least. Like, um, it, it might not even necessarily be practice but you're playing but i'm but i'm playing and it's the, I, I think it's more maintenance at that point and it's not because i don't want to it's just that my mindset gets dragged off to different places like the one thing that actually that i've been asking al repeatedly is i don't understand how he has time to go to the gym and work out <laughs> um and it's one thing that and i you know i really time. want to do I know it's exactly, it's just like make the time. And it's, as you say, once you get over that mental hurdle, like um, like by my house, uh, I live in the middle of Yorkshire. I'm sure you're familiar with the region, you know? That, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's lovely up there. Yeah, it's beautiful hills everywhere. Loads of beautiful walks. And my, uh, my girlfriend uh, loves walking. And I did a two-week stint about a month ago, uh, every single day, because it was obviously, it's summer, so it's quite beautiful. But the moment you stop doing it, it just, even just something as simple as walking up a hill, which isn't a difficult thing to really do, just starts becoming a chore. So I just need to get into that mindset thing of it again. The same with the guitar. I just need to like set aside some time rather than thinking about the other things that I have to do during the day and just get into the mental headspace of doing it. Because I think that's most of what the problem is. I think um, you could even look at guitar in the way that you'd look at exercise. Like for me, if I don't exercise, I can definitely feel the difference not even you do feel it physically but like i feel a bit mentally in a slump sometimes yep. like i feel all like your, your endorphins like just your mental state after doing some exercise and it doesn't have to be intense just you're moving your body and getting some fresh air and sunlight whatever but that's a big thing but you can even use guitar as that like you know just like a bit like a mental health exercise like you're being totally present with one thing and just enjoying what you're doing you're not looking at the clock or anything like that you're just doing it because you like to do it yeah i feel like if you give yourself a strong enough reason, that helps too. Uh, if you give yourself a strong enough reason, that can overcome a lot of the mental hurdles. Typically, I've noticed that when people don't do those things, they just haven't created a strong enough why in their minds. Like they might know why they should do it intellectually, but they, they're they just not feeling it yet. And uh, you got to do whatever you need to do in order to feel that the need to do the thing then it gets easier i think then you find a way to do it yeah i would agree with that and it, it, it's all about your perspective as well right like if you're maybe historically someone who's not really interested in exercise or sports and i wasn't like i no one in my family cares about sports we weren't a sports family but you kind of you know start doing something and then once you start to see the benefit of it 
your perspective of it completely changes, right? Like before, like you just mentioned before, you might intellectually understand exercise equals better health or whatever. But until you do it and start to feel feel the effects of that, and when you don't have it anymore, you're like, oh, yeah, I this is something that I do value a lot now. Or you, know, you can feel the, the negative effects of when it's not there. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I think that goes for anything that, anything that makes your life better that, uh, that people will tend to procrastinate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's human nature, oh, yeah. I think to a degree, like there's something in us that just makes things more difficult than they need to be sometimes. I am definitely the king of procrastination. Me too. I don't know why. Cause I enjoy playing the guitar. And then this is sometimes where I'm like, noodling around and not even doing anything and just then I just put it down, you know? <laughs> We're very um, stimulative creatures though, aren't we? Like if, you know, you pick something up and like, oh, I'm bored of that now, put it down, I'll go do something else. Like sometimes you're just not in the headspace for it. It's just the way you are too. It's not, not everyone doesn't have to, you know, dive into something. It's just, if you're feeling it, go for it. Exactly. I think that uh, part of the trick though is training yourself to get into the headspace. But... I don't, man, I don't know that many musicians that aren't procrastinators. Like, I feel like just about any musician you'll talk to will tell you that they're a lazy piece of shit. Like, yeah. The, one, the <laughs> ones that aren't are usually psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's any creative though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it does the that. personality it's, type, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's almost like for us, like it, procrastination is almost like our relaxation time. In a way. Right. Oh, it stresses me out. Because <laughs> you're thinking about what's coming up that needs to be done or something. Yeah. Yeah. Procrastination is not a relaxing time for me. I mean, that's what I meant. You know, thinking about the, like, you're not doing that because you're worried about something else. Relaxation time. <laughs> you know, I had a thought the other day that is could be complete nonsense, but I was thinking about procrastination and it's like everything that I have to do and historically have had to do, it gets done. Like I don't ever just not do something or whatever. It, get, it gets done in whatever shape or form. But I'm wondering if like procrastination is like some weird subconscious thing where you're you're like, I already know that this is going to get done, but it's just your mind like playing up on itself. Like you're, you're think you're anxious about what you have to do, but even though it's already fine, it'll be taken care of. It's just like a, a mental trick or something like it could be nonsense. I don't know. That's actually a good point. I never thought about it like that. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're subconsciously already know that the the task will be done because you already know what has to be done and how much time it's going to require. But if you're procrastinating it, you're kind of just really, like you mentioned, like you're relaxing, but you're thinking about what you have to do. It's just kind of mind games. It's like handing in that project, to, uh, only starting it two days before hand-in date. Yeah. You know that you'll be able to do it. You just don't want to in exactly. that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, actually. Never thought about it like that. Procrastination isn't real. <laughs> it's all <laughs> pigment of your imagination. Well, the question, though, is uh, would it have been better if you had started earlier? Probably almost always, Yeah. <laughs> So then it is real. And then procrastination yeah. is real. You've just well, also it could have been worse. It could have been, but you don't know, basically. You can you can know with certain projects because it was certain projects like okay, so you don't know if you would have with a song if you would have written the riff earlier, right? So that's that's impossible to tell. But there are certain types of projects where you know that you rushed it. And you know that you could have knocked off everything on the list if you had just started three weeks earlier rather than two days before the thing. 
so I feel like sometimes starting two days before the thing yields an acceptable result, but not an optimal result. And I think yeah. that we're always, I think we can be pretty aware of that in most cases, if we're being honest. In the, on the other hand, though, sometimes, I'm sure you both experienced this too, some of the best riffs or songs, whatever it was, have kind of come up last minute just because yep. the, the headspace was right or you weren't overthinking it because you had three weeks, right? Like if you have three weeks to mull yep. over something, you're second guessing yourself and it's never finished, right? Because you're just constantly fixing it, air quotes. But sometimes the stuff that is just, you know, last minute can be really good as well. Yeah. So I think that with creative work, like writing a song, the time factor is more amorphous in that I completely agree with you that sometimes that is the best way. But I mean, for like other types of things, like maybe setting up a marketing campaign around the release of a song. (laughs) More uh, logical, practical stuff that has to be organized. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Yeah, that stuff. Left brain or is it right brain? The one that's organized, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That doesn't exist in me. Exactly. (laughs) The creative mind. I mean, yeah, coordinating an album release, like all that that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that if you procrastinate that stuff, you will be hurting yourself. If you know you have to write a song and you spend three weeks like mentally prepping and then in one day you sit down and it all just comes out great, then you, you weren't really procrastinating, I think. Yeah. It, it happened when it was meant to happen sort of thing. Yeah. So I think it depends on the type of work. Yeah. Which is kind of also why there's there's managers and there's writers. Like everyone's kind of got their, their shtick, right? Like someone's got a certain personality type for a certain thing and it just works better for them. Yeah. Which is why I think that... Uh, Neither should get demonized because sometimes musicians will demonize the managerial types and sometimes the managerial types will dismiss musician types and uh, they need each other. Of course. Yeah. It's like the yin and the yang, isn't it? Bingo, yeah. Well, one of them's not going to be able to survive in the world without the other one making their plans for them. And then the other one's (laughs) not going to be able to survive in the world without the other one making the art for them to make the plans around. So should stop demonizing each other. Yeah. We all get along. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> In the end. So In the we end. have some questions here from our listeners. I'd like to ask you some. Tom Waller. Fire away. Do you write riffs with an intention in mind? Like you want the riff to feel a certain way or do you figure out how the song makes you feel as a whole afterwards? For me, it's... It's kind of just when it comes out a lot of the time. Josh is the primary riff guy in the band, but what will often happen is uh, if there's maybe like if Dan or someone has kind of, you know, maybe programmed like a, a synthy part or there's kind of already a bit of an atmosphere that'll kind of dictate the riff. So it's kind of like tempo based a little bit. So kind of whatever the, the, the vibe is. But sometimes as well, you might just have a cool riff and then a whole song gets structured around that too. So it's kind of case by case. Makes sense. So I'm I'm not going to pronounce this name because it's written in Russian. Do your best. <laughs> Nirap Kappa something. Mob. <laughs> yeah. I, who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? I'm sorry, man. Who was your guitar hero growing up? Well, like I mentioned, I was really into pop punk in the early days. So my first first hero was Tom DeLonge. Not, not a guitar player by any stretch of the imagination, but 
he's what got me stoked on it. But I would say maybe a little bit later on would have been um, Guthrie Govins, like just the king. But that was even Sick. fairly recently that I got into him. Last few years. He's pretty godly. Oh, he's unbelievable. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Have you, have you ever watched the solo on, um, what's his name from Porcupine Tree? Stephen Wilson. That's the one. Have you seen that solo he does in the studio video? Is that, is that black and white, I think? Uh, I can't remember. It's on a strat. I think I know. Yeah, I think I've seen that one. It's just insane. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, like, made me made me cry. He can play <laughs> any genre like he's been playing it for 30 years. It's crazy. He's definitely one of the best, isn't he? Yeah, unbelievable. He's playing for like Hans Zimmer and stuff now too, isn't yeah. he? Uh-huh. Yeah. Which is the coolest gig ever. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. We bumped into him as well. He was just, uh, we played in South America last year and he was just, he got out of a van at Bogota Airport. It's like, what What are you doing here <laughs> in South America? I can imagine him just being like just the most laid back, just casual guy as well. Yeah. I think he's just your very stereotypical British man. Yeah, yeah. That likes a pint. Yeah. <laughs> Loves a cigarette, just having a chat at the pub. Yep. yep. So question from Bass Peters. What does your warm-up routine before a show look like? These days, it's fairly kind of body stretching, to be honest with you. Um, just make sure the whole body's kind of a bit limber. But as far as guitar, it's really simple. Like I just do kind of chromatic scales, things like that. I might run through some of the trickier riffs in the set just to kind of get a little bit prepared for them, things like that. But it's nothing too regimented. It's just kind of generally getting some some blood to the arms and the fingers and drink lots of water and stuff like that. Basically just about getting your whole self primed more than just your hands. Pretty much, yeah. It's a lot of, a lot of psychological prep as well. <laughs> just, you know, r- relax and kind of get in the headspace. Try and keep, keep the adrenaline at bay. Makes sense. Next question is from Ryan Flair. What was the biggest challenge or update you had to make during the songwriting process of Holy Hell? Well, a lot of it was just really kind of figuring out what we wanted to do because um, obviously we had some material that Tom had written and how how that would complement new stuff and whether we wanted to be you know quite different or try and stay in the same vein. So it was a lot of just kind of trying to balance the, 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 the old and the new sort of thing. The album rules, by the way. Thank you very much. It was quite cool to be able to have uh, an amalgamation of some of the songs he had written and you know, even just little parts of songs that would work and things like that and blending that with completely new material as well. Sam Zare is asking, have you gotten any tips for beginner bands in the UK metalcore scene now trying to make it to a decent level? Do you think it's easier or harder than when Architects broke? Hmm, that's hard to say, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, like how technology has influenced everything. But I think when, when we were all playing, you know, this was kind of pre-YouTube and stuff. So it was very organic, just, you know, friends playing in a room together, going book some shows in your local venues and stuff like that. But at the same time now with technology, it's it's much easier to record and, you know, have exposure and things without even having to tour per se. Um but I would I would say uh, just focus on being a good live band is probably one of the best things you can do. Like play together, play live when possible, of course. But just playing together is going to make you stronger than if you're just individually working on songs and things like that. Yeah, you know, when people ask that kind of question, I wonder what kind of answer they're expecting to get because uh, I feel like 
the real answer is be as good as you can and work as hard as you can and make as many friends as you can. But I feel like, isn't that kind of obvious? There's no silver bullet answer, is there? No, but I feel like because you hear this kind of question a lot, that's kind of what's behind it, like expecting to get the secret or something. Yeah, there really isn't a secret. No, I don't know of one. It's just attitude, effort, and experience, I guess, would be the kind of the three things together, wouldn't it? Not quitting. Yeah. Yeah. Perseverance. And 14 days in a 15-seater passenger van without a shower. <laughs> yeah. You really want to <laughs> test your metal, try that out. Oh, dude. Fucking 2014. Done that. <laughs> I remember like living off of like like peanut butter and like canned alphagetti and stuff back in the day. It was pretty grim in the early days. Oh, man. But when you're 16 or 17, you don't care. You're just having a laugh with your friends on the road, right? Yeah, exactly. And you'd just be doing the same thing at their house anyway. Exactly. You're just, you're just in a mobile death trap instead. <laughs> so I've got a question here from Brandon uh, Chavez. What inspired the F-sharp, F-sharp, B-E, G-sharp, C-sharp tuning? Well, that was an extension of the G-sharp tuning, which um, Tom first started messing around with Um like probably around 09, there's a couple of tracks on uh, Hollow Crown that have that. Um, and I think he may have even kind of lifted that a bit from Mastodon, possibly. But then I guess just he was fiddling around and then it expanded into the F sharp version, which is just one additional step down. And then the A string is up a half step. So it's kind of like a F sharp minor kind of a style tuning. But I think it's just it's experimentation. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. It's just double drop, right? Yeah. So the the low two strings are an octave apart. Yeah. And then you would uh, raise the what would be the B string a half step up. So when you play what looks like an A major chord, it sounds A minor. Mm-hmm. Or oh, in our case, F okay. sharp. So you can't really do a lot with it other than the songs that are written in that tuning. But it's it just makes it cool because you can hit some open strings with the big riffy stuff too, right? So you've got some some open strings in the correct key w- without having to like learn bizarre chord shapes or anything like that. It's exactly why I play in Dadgad. So there I can play go. open strings only. It's the best. <laughs> I played in a tuning at one point that was F, F, basically. Yeah. And that octave between the two low strings is awesome, I think. Yeah. Yep. There's actually a it's couple great. of songs on the first Monuments record because I didn't own an eight string at the time. It's double F on the low, on a seven, just because until I had an eight string, I just kept changing the tuning. But yeah, it's really fun to play in that double drop. So listeners definitely try it out. A lot of people ask us why, why don't we use seven strings or whatever, but it's kind of for that reason. Cause like you can have, you can have that low pitch and it works really well for riffy stuff, but you don't, cause you just got a big inter- interval skip between the two bottom strings. You don't, cause we're not doing a lot of just like power chords, which you would probably normally have in like a dropped seven or eight string guitar. So it's kind of gives you the clarity of the higher strings, with able to incorporate the, you know, the, the big low notes on the bottom string. Absolutely. All right. Final question. This is from Patrick McHugh. Uh, hey, Adam, what element elevated your playing and writing the most? If you can pick one particular time where you put in the most time into guitar and felt like you were progressing very quickly. Ooh, that's a good one. I think it was maybe uh, in the earlier days, my old band, even Architect stuff as well, some of the earlier stuff had some odd meter in it. So I think playing some odd meter stuff really kind of had to, you know, stretch your brain muscles out quite a lot. So that sort of thing. 
so I guess that's more of a rhythmic answer, like just getting better rhythmic competency and kind of thinking more like a drummer a little bit versus like, you know, you're, you're shredding or anything like that. So it's just challenging your, your brain muscles, if that makes sense. Total sense. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complicated stuff, but I think just, you know, pushing your, your comfort zones musically, it makes you a better player. I think that that's, that's it right there is, uh, as long as you keep pushing that, you'll keep on getting better. It's no different than uh, going to the gym, right? You're you're going there to challenge your muscles. It's the same thing with your musical ability. If it's if it's if it's difficult, it's probably making you better. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of a requirement, I think, in order to get better. Adam, thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's good to meet it's you. Been awesome, guys. Yeah, you as well. Thanks thank for having me. Thank you very on. much, man. It's good to finally chat to you after yeah. so many years. I don't think <laughs> we've even really hung out in person, have we? No, like uh, as I say, I was at your uh, I was at your show in Manchester. Must have been what January, February 2019, I want to say. And I know what it's like being on tour, you know. I didn't want to hassle. I was there with uh, with Ryan and the Polaris guys, just saying hello because I've known Ryan for years and never met him either. But I'm pretty sure it'll happen one time. Maybe those uh, future elusive festivals and stuff like that will <laughs> bump into each other. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe. by 2027. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll be all gray-haired by then. Yeah, and I've already gotten a few. <laughs> I was going to say by then, yeah. <laughs> Aging like fine wine. Yes, absolutely. Or blue cheese. <laughs> Stinky. All right, man. Well, thank you. Thanks, guys. Ciao. Man, so I think it's cool that Adam is disciplined enough to do what he needs to do regardless of the situation. The fact that he takes his bike on tour is really, really cool to me. I admire people who who do what they need to do regardless of what's going on in their lives. That takes a lot of discipline because obviously you've taught as well, Al, extensively, just like me. And yes, I know. I can't imagine the... Uh, the first thing that I want to do when I wake up in the morning is go and cycle a bike around a city I have no idea about. <laughs> Dude, but I can tell you that like any sort of routine like that, be it exercise or practice, it's hard to do anyways. Like even now, like that I'm home all the time, it's still like every single time I want to go work out and I work out two or three times a day now. Every single time, there's still that voice that's like, don't do it. You don't want to. Uh, you're too tired. You didn't sleep enough. Like, maybe you didn't eat enough. Like, just, it's cool. Just don't. You work out two to three times a day. Crazy. Two or three times a day, yeah. I'm not going to do that forever, obviously. But, uh, you know, there's uh, trying to finish my transformation. But... The point just being that, like, I do it anyways. And I feel like it's the same thing with guitar. You're not always going to feel like doing it. Not, there's a few guitar players who we know who, for some reason, they're addicted to it. And they just do it and do it and do it and, like, cool. But I don't think that's most guitar players. I think most guitar players, even pros, like, obviously they love it, but... You know, there's an element of it that requires them to do it when they don't feel like doing it. And I think like like you just said, what are you going to do with that time? You're going to sit there watching Netflix for that 30 minutes or are you going to go do this thing? And, and that's what I think about with the working out. So like say that I'm going to do 45 minutes on the elliptical. Uh, 
it feels like it's a lot. I know it's not a lot, but like before I do it, like there's that voice that's like, God, that's a long time to just sit there. But then I think to myself, how long does 45 minutes take to go by if I have Netflix on? It just flies the fuck by. Yeah. If I'm just fucking around online, hours can go by. So what's 45 minutes? Like You could always put Netflix on while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, you could. But still, you'll still have that voice that tells you to just watch it on the couch or something. Yeah, of course. It happens pretty much to everyone, I think, as you said. Yeah, it's... It's the same with guitar playing. Like, uh, man, I can just sit here and look at gear videos. The amount of time that people spend looking at gear videos, amp reviews and shit, imagine if they spent that stuff, that time working on their picking, even half that time. Yeah. I mean, my my girlfriend is pretty addicted to YouTube and I see how much of it she watches and... If anyone else is as addicted to YouTube as that, then obviously many hours of watching amp reviews doesn't get you better at guitar. Yeah, it might find you an amp that you like, but ultimately anyone that focuses on the guitar can make a sound out of nearly any amp that they want because obviously the practice is what makes the sound. Dude, all all these people we know who are great guitar players who made the decision to uh, practice instead of waste their time, still found amps that they liked. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, or, that, that's the thing. <laughs> or they just went where the money was. <laughs> sure. But th- does it matter in the end if they sound good? No, no, it doesn't. Exactly. No, as I say, you can sound great through any amp. I mean, if Joe Satriani played through a G10 Marshall, you could probably still tell that it was him. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, you're talking about your girlfriend being addicted to YouTube. I think we're all addicted to our screens, like whether it be Facebook or YouTube or text messaging or whatever. Like this, it's a part of who we are now. And much like in older days, people would come home from work and watch an average of four or five hours a night of television. And that was like, that was the big thing when I was growing up was like, how many hours a day people just wasted watching TV. I think it's, it has now moved to online stuff, but it's, it's the same idea. Like people get addicted to these things that just occupy their time. And for some reason, I think we have this drive to just do that instead of do something that takes work. And that's why discipline is a lot more important to me Discipline and habit, I think, is a lot more important than motivation because uh, motivation comes and goes, kind of like inspiration. And I think one of the biggest problems that musicians have is waiting to get motivated and that they shouldn't wait to get motivated because motivation is just an emotion and emotions are uh, fickle. But what's not fickle is discipline. What's not fickle is a habit. And uh, that's why having something at the schedule is so good because it gives you a schedule that you can follow. And by following that schedule, you turn it into a habit. By sticking to that habit, it becomes a discipline. And then even if you feel like doing something else, you'll do it because it's a habit. And that's not like you'll never watch YouTube again or do any of those things, but Rather than spending four hours of your night on YouTube, maybe you'll spend 
two hours of your night on YouTube and the other two doing something that actually helps you and uh, your life will change. I totally agree with everything you said. And there's been times in the past where I always think, I don't want to do this right now. And then all of a sudden I've written the best music I've written in a long time just because I, you know, crushed through that barrier. So I think that having the schedule and some discipline to the guitar, you'll see huge improvements in your playing, but you also might find that you just get inspired in that moment by forcing yourself through that barrier, ignoring the voices in your head or the devil side of your brain that's telling you not to do it. I can't tell you how many times I've started to practice when I had no ideas and didn't feel like it, just started practicing practice stuff like scales. And then suddenly the light bulb turned on and then I wrote something awesome. Yeah, it's happened so many times to me as well. Generally, I think that when it comes to writing, it's something that sort of happens organically rather than being forced. And if you're playing the instrument and maybe not thinking about it by doing the schedule and not seeing it as a discipline and just something that's going to make you better, then you might end up just writing something really great just from doing that every single day. So there's other benefits to following the schedule as well. Could you explain what the schedule is for anyone who doesn't know? It's an organizational part of Riff Hard that basically, if you've got a short amount of time, say 20 minutes, then it tells you what videos you should be focusing on on that week and what exercises, um, all the way up to if you have an hour of time. And it changes weekly, different focuses, different focus points. So sometimes it might be focusing on timing, Sometimes it might be focusing on downpicking speed and endurance and so forth. Yeah, so basically it helps you develop that habit. Helps you develop the habit. Regardless of how much time you've got. You only need to spend 20 minutes to 30 minutes a day and you will see vast improvements as long as you stick to it. I feel like I heard John Petrucci say that 30 minutes a day, every day, like say over the course of a week, 30 minutes a day, for seven days straight will do more for you than one day where you spend six hours and then six days where you do zero. Smart. <laughs> Isn't True. it? It's, it's sound like, yeah. Cause obviously it's the, your, your brain takes time as well. Cause like, you know, the brain's learning all the time as well. Like say you can't play something one night, you go to sleep and then you go back to it and you notice that you can play it a little bit better, maybe even perfectly. Um, so that analogy makes complete sense. If you play the same thing for 30 minutes, seven days in a row, by the seventh day, your brain's going to caught up with your hands. The muscle memory is going to be there and you're going to play it significantly better than you did on the one day of six hours. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you want to figure out how to fit guitar into your crazy ass life schedule and actually keep on getting better with things that matter. Go to riffhard.com. Check out the schedule, follow it, and uh, get better. And post some videos on the group when you join, so I can see the progress. Yeah, we want to see we want to see the progress. And so do you. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> Not you. I mean them. <laughs> no, I I know. I hope they want to see it. All right, man. It's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure, man. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Rivard Podcast. We'll see you 